So we're in the second week of our sermon series, Lessons from the Lesser Known, and we are looking at some of the more minor characters in the Bible who nevertheless play major roles. And last week I talked about Gideon, who was called by God to go in the strength that he had, whatever strength that he had, even though he didn't think he had very much. And today we're talking about Philemon. He is the recipient of a letter written by the Apostle Paul. It is only a single page in your Bibles, but there is a lot packed into that page. So we printed out copies, like I mentioned, so we can look at it all together. My hope this morning is that you feel free to just mark it all up, circle things, underline things, and annotate things. Engage with the text this morning with more than just your mind, but with your actual body and your eyes and your fingers and hands and all of this. There is so much going on here, and we're going to try to hit as much as we can this morning, and I can already feel myself talking fast, so I'll try not to do that. This letter is written to an individual, right? It's written to a single person, not to a group, which I think reminds us that our faith is not this collection of abstract ideas that don't really matter in our real world. I think that's a huge takeaway for us this morning. Faith, hope, love, these concepts ultimately demand action. They demand us to live them out in our lives, and I think you'll see what I mean. Philemon is a complicated little letter. The themes are intense. Some of the Greek is very difficult to translate. So this morning, we're going to do this a little differently. I'm actually going to go verse by verse through Philemon. I really want to dig in to that this morning, which is not what we normally do, but I'm going to do it. It's risky, I know, because it's 9.30 on a Sunday morning, and our brains not be quite ready for text analysis. It's like waking somebody up and being like, hey, let's do some calculus. Um, but stick with me. <laughs> Math isn't so bad. I have to say that because I'm married to a former math teacher. If you're a note-taking person, I think you'll be very happy this morning. So here we go. I want to let three questions guide us as we go so that we don't get lost. The first question is this. What is the situation? Like, what is happening in this letter? Like, what's the circumstances? What's the situation? Um, This is difficult because we really only have one side of the conversation, right? We don't have the full picture. In this station, we have one person, Paul, writing to another person, Philemon, writing writing about a third person, Onesimus, right? So we can't fully understand all the dynamics at play with these three people with just only like one part of the conversation, but we're going to do our best. Second question, what does Paul want Philemon to do? What is he calling him to do? And third, what does this mean for us? Like how does this ancient letter focus on a very specific situation help us understand our will, God's will for us in our lives today? So these are the three questions that we're going to try to answer this morning. Cool. Cool, cool, let's roll. All right, so a moment, for a moment, imagine that you are Philemon, okay? You're Philemon, you're an early believer, you host a group of Christians in your home for house church, all right? You're doing house church in Colossae, and one day two men show up, each carrying letters from the Apostle Paul, which is pretty cool, right? (laughs) Apostle Paul wrote us some letters. All right, one of the men is carrying a letter addressed to the whole church. That's the letter that we now know as the letter to the Colossians. The other man is carrying a personal letter, and it's addressed just to you. And to complicate the matter, the man carrying the letter, written just for you, is Onesimus. He's your runaway slave, returned with a letter from Paul. Talk about awkward. (laughs) So awkwardly, you open the letter and you begin to read. Verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and our fellow worker. If you know Paul, you know that he typically starts his letter by saying that he is an apostle of Jesus, a title of authority, Apostle Paul. You listen to an apostle. Here, Paul does not call himself an apostle. He calls himself a prisoner. So right away, this is a different tone. This sets a tone for the letter. I'm coming to you as a friend, not an authority. 
important to know. All right, verse 2. And also to Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home, grace and peace to you from our God, from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. So Aphia is most likely Philemon's wife. Archippus is probably his son. Note, too, the letter is also addressed to the whole church, which I think is important here at the beginning because it plants the idea in Philemon's mind that the people in the church are also part of his family. This is a personal letter written to him and his family. That actually kind of includes the church, too. All right, then Paul greets Philemon. Grace and peace to you from God and Jesus. Paul knows that Philemon will need grace, and he will need peace if he is going to do what Paul is asking him to do. He will need to remember that he has already experienced grace. That's the beginning. All right, verse 4. I always thank my God as I remember you in my prayers because I hear about your love. I hear about it for all the holy people, and I hear about your faith in the Lord Jesus. I was talking to someone a few weeks ago, and he shared with me his hope that the Christian church can resist Christian nationalism in America and reclaim our gospel witness. And as he shared, what I witnessed in this man was just a love in him that was patient and that was kind and that wasn't overly judgmental. It was a love that bears all things and believes all things and hopes all things and even endures all things for the sake of Christ. And my reaction was to think not only this guy's kind of amazing, but also to think actually God is pretty amazing to inspire this man to think and dream in this way. What I'm hearing and seeing in him is the result of a heart transformed by God's love. So when Paul hears about the love and faith of Philemon, and by the way, how cool is it that Philemon is doing such good, important work, that word of it reaches Paul all the way in Rome, right? Philemon might be lesser known to us, but he was very known to Paul. And Paul thanks not Philemon, but actually thanks God who gave Philemon this new heart. And again, this is an important framing for everything that Paul's about to say. Philemon, I know you. You love people. You have a deep faith in Jesus. Like that's important to realize and remember. Verse 6. I pray that your partnership with us in the faith may be effective in deepening your understanding of every good thing we share for the sake of Christ. All right, so verse 6 is really foundational for the rest of the letter. It's Paul's ultimate prayer, but it's also the most difficult verse in this chapter to translate. The first important word that I want you to note in your text is the word koinonia. It's the word we translate as partnership in the passage. So in verse 6, the word partnership, that's the first word that I really want you to kind of underline and circle. Like that partnership word is the word koinonia. And the word here is actually a pretty complicated Greek concept, so koinonia. Sometimes we translate it as sharing, as in, I have some M&Ms, and I'm going to share some M&Ms with you. There's this tangible, physical thing that I have that I'm giving to you. Some Bibles actually translate this verse in that M&Ms kind of way. I have this faith, and I'm sharing my faith with you. I'm giving it to you. I'm koinoniaing it with you. That's hard to say. Sometimes koinonia can mean not just to share a thing like M&M's, but it can actually mean to share an experience. Like when you go to camp together and you share these powerful moments around the campfire, it's like going to a Taylor Swift concert with thousands of other Swifties, and the result is a shared, a koinonia experience with everyone else at the concert. You've shared this with everyone. Here in Philemon, I think Paul is getting at even a different angle to koinonia than that kind of sharing. There's more sharing going on than just sharing a thing or even sharing an experience Here, koinonia is a partnership. It's such a close sharing that there's been formed a fellowship, a sharing so much together that there is no longer two separate people. It's no longer Ben and Jennifer, it's Benifer together, right? There's no longer Paul and Philemon, there's Paulamon together. (laughs) Separated by physical distance, yes, but united by the Spirit in this very intense and personal and connecting way. The NIV, therefore, translates this as a partnership, That's how we have it in our text, a partnership with us. You share this partnership with us in the faith. So Philemon has been partnering with Paul in this intense and connected kind of way. Verse 7, 
Your love has given me great joy and encouragement because you, brother, have refreshed the hearts. You have refreshed the hearts of the Lord's people. Philemon, you're loving people and you're loving them well. You've refreshed their hearts. You know, the normal word for heart in Greek, you might know, is cardios, right? So cardio, cardiology, cardio, you do cardio at the gym. But here Paul uses a different word for heart. He doesn't use cardio. He uses this is a word that's pronounced splagchnon. <laughs> splagchnon. Um, it literally means entrails. It like means your guts. So splagchnon is your guts, which kind of like sounds like it's just about right, right? Splagchnon guts. Um, it's Paul's word for the deepest part of us, like the innermost core being of who we are. It's the guts of God's people that Philemon has been refreshing. So this word here, splagshnon, this word heart, so that's another word to circle. And while you're circling it in verse 6, I actually want you to go ahead and circle it again. It's in verse 12, and circle it again. It's in verse 20. So there are three times in this letter that Paul uses this exact same word for the innermost guts part of us, splagshnon. It's a fun word. You should try that later. Um, <clears throat> so these first seven verses, all introduction, all sort of orientation to what's happening. You can even draw a line after verse 7 because everything up until this point has been greeting and establishing the relationship. So Paul and Philemon, who are these two dudes? They are brothers. They are co-workers. They share a foundation of fellowship and love, and all of that buildup is really, really important for Paul because he's about to leverage all that strong encouragement into a giant ask, all right? He's about to say, I'm gonna ask you to do something important and huge, and before I do that, I'm gonna tell you that you're the best, <laughs> right? Smart approach. Compliment first, giant ask second. All right, verse eight. Therefore, Always pay attention to the therefores in Paul's logic. They're very important for his sequential thinking. Therefore, because of all these things, therefore, although in Christ I could be bold and order you to do what you ought to do, yet I prefer to appeal to you on the basis of love. I could order you, but I appeal to you on the basis of love. It is none other than, it is as none other than Paul, an old man and now a prisoner of Christ Jesus. So at Gordon Conwell, one of the professors we had was known as the Velvet Hammer. <clears throat> Velvet Hammer. Uh, the explanation for that is he had really high expectations for us. Um, and when we didn't reach his high expert expectations, he would just crush us like a hammer. <clears throat> but even when he did, because of his approach to us, it kind of felt like you were getting hugged. So velvet hammer, velvet hammer. Paul, the apostle, Paul, often comes across to us in Scripture like a hammer. He is a scholar. He is a legal expert. He is logical. He's argumentative. He's bold. He's the kind of guy who would debate you into a thousand little pieces. He preaches. He argues with philosophers. He creates division among religious leaders. Even today, his words can ring harsh in our modern ears. And his words have been pulled out of context and used in some really hurtful ways by Christians and non-Christians. So reading Paul is pretty complicated, and it requires a lot of careful study. He is passionate. He is highly educated, and he brings all of that intensity into his conversations and letters. He can seem as cold and sharp as a steel blade or a hammer. But he's got some velvet in there, too. He is Paul, he says, an old man, a prisoner of Christ, making his appeal on love rather than authority. He won't force Philemon. He loves him, and love doesn't bully, and love doesn't intimidate. Love always renovates. So he won't order him to do something. He asks him in this letter. Verse 10, I appeal, I ask to you, for my son Onesimus, who became my son while I was in chains. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he has become useful both to you and to me. And this is the first mention we get of our third character of Onesimus. And Onesimus was, as I said, Philemon's runaway slave. 
which makes him a criminal, which makes him a fugitive. And what's the first thing Paul says about this fugitive, runaway, criminal slave? He says, my son, my son, Onesimus, which is Paul's way of saying, my son, that Onesimus has come to faith in Christ. He's part of the family. He's my son. I claim him as my own. I love him. Formerly, he was a slave, ironically, useless to you. (laughs) But now the man in front of you is changed. In verse 12, I'm sending him, I'm sending him, who is my very heart, back to you. I would have liked to keep him with me so that he could take your place in helping me while I am in chains for the gospel. I think this is just a really incredible statement by Paul. Paul has already conveyed this really deep fellowship and connection, this partnership with Philemon, and now he's going to extend that same kind of fellowship and connection to this next man, to this slave. And he calls Onesimus my very heart. And my very heart is the same splagnon word that we saw earlier. Splagnon. <laughs> you want to tell somebody you really care about them? <laughs> You're splagnon, right? My deepest self, they're my true core. I'm sending Onesimus, but when I'm sending him, what I really mean is I'm sending myself to you. My son, I'm sending my heart to you. Take care of him. He's been so helpful to me while I'm in chains for the gospel. He's been so helpful. So maybe Onesimus was running letters for Paul. Maybe he was bringing him food, or maybe he was just checking in with him every now and then. But it's clear that they are spreading the good news together. They are partners in the faith. And I want to keep him here with me, he says. But you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to send him back to you. Because, like with Gideon last week, there is also work to do on Philemon's heart here. God needs Philemon's heart to change, and he needs Philemon to grow and live out the gospel in a new and good way. Verse 14. I won't keep Onesimus without your consent. I'm sending him back, which is kind of incredible, right? I'm sending this man back to face his fears, to go back to the home that he ran away from. So picture this, right? These two men standing face to face, Paul's letters in between them. Normally what happens between master and slave? I mean, Onesimus goes back to work, right? He gets punished for running away. Maybe he apologizes, Paul is asking them in this moment to see this situation differently, to see that the gospel turns this expected world upside down and gives them new eyes and a new perspective. Live in light of the gospel, Philemon. Live in light of the gospel, which changes this dynamic, and the choice, Philemon, is yours to make. Verse 15, perhaps the reason that Onesimus was separated from you for a little while was that you might have him back forever, no longer a slave, but better than a slave as a dear brother. Paul is suggesting here that maybe God's hand has been in these events all along. Maybe God knew that Onesimus needed to flee from the home of a Christian owner in order to become a Christian. He had to leave a Christian home to find Christ. Perhaps, Paul says, God's sovereign hand is at work in these details. After all, what are the odds? I mean, it just so happened that Onesimus ran into Paul in Rome a guy who not only knew Philemon, but was the very guy who led Philemon to faith in Christ? See verse 20 later. It's an incredible coincidence. It just so happened. And Onesimus therefore returns, no longer a slave, a fellow man and a dear brother in the Lord, which is the exact same way that Paul's described Philemon, as a dear brother in the Lord. So the slave-master relationship has been transcended and a new relationship is at play. The gospel has made these three men from three different backgrounds and three different social standings into incredibly a family, into brothers, all devoted to the same Lord. Okay, so we're going fast, I know, but we have a decent answer, I think, to our first question. What is the situation? Like, what's happening here? 
Recap, Onesimus, a runaway slave, has been led by God to the apostle Paul, and now this new man, this new brother, is a follower of Christ. He is helping spread the gospel. He is Paul's very heart. He's his dear brother. And Paul has now sent him back to Philemon, a Christian slave owner, a co-worker for the gospel, a leader in the church who is known for his faithfulness and love, who has refreshed the hearts of many. He is also a dear brother. Okay, second question. What does Paul want Philemon to do in this moment? All right, starting in verse 17, we're going to read Paul's requests to Philemon. And these are things that he, Paul wants him to do. Each of these verbs is worth underlining. Verse 17, so if you consider me a partner, welcome him as you would welcome me. Welcome him is the verb here. That's the command. If you consider me a partner, and the word for partner here is, again, that same word koinonia, if you love me, if I'm part of your family, then welcome him. If you welcome me, then also welcome him. Welcome him. That's the request. More on what welcome him looks like in a second. Verse 18. If he has done you any wrong or he owes you anything, charge it to me. That's the second ask, the second request. Charge it to me. I, Paul, am writing this with my own hand. I will pay it back. Not to mention, you owe me your very self. So <laughs> we'll get to that in a second. So Paul's removing any roadblock here. He's paving the way for reconciliation. If this man has any debt, if he's stolen something, if losing him has deprived you of material goods and services, Charge me. Put it on my tab. I'll pay his debt. It's canceled. Just like the debt of our sin is completely canceled on the cross, I'll take it. And at the end, you guys notice, verse 19, not to mention you owe me your very self. And this is where we suddenly understand that Philemon, just like his slave, owes his salvation to Paul's influence and love. Like, you owe me yourself. Do you not remember that I showed you Jesus? They're more alike than Philemon actually realizes. So Paul says in verse 20, in fact, now I think about now that I like now that I think about it, I'd like to get some return on the investment <laughs> I made in you, dude. Um, I've given you a lot of love. Can you please give some love to our new brother? And then the third request: refresh my heart in Christ. Refresh my heart in Christ. This verse is masterful. Here's Paul's logic. You've already circled heart in these three places, right? So now you can like draw arrows connecting them. From verse six, Philemon, you've refreshed the hearts of the saints. Verse 12, Onesimus is my heart. Verse 20, refresh my heart. So the connection here is refresh Onesimus, just like you've refreshed the people. He's my heart. Refresh my heart. Refresh can also be translated as give rest here. So give rest to Onesimus. Give rest to him. Next verse, 21. Confident of your obedience, I write to you knowing that you will do even more than I'm asking. All right, so what is the ask? Like, what does Paul want? Because uh, you better get it right, by the way, Philemon, verse 20, not included on your handout. Paul says this, oh, by the way, also prepare a bed for me, because I'm going to be there soon, right? And I'm going to see if you did what I wanted you to do. All right, so what does Paul want? What does Paul want? You know, it's, it's just vague enough to be frustrating here. We don't exactly know what Paul is asking. He never says, free Onesimus, let alone slavery is wrong. But let's add it all up. Philemon, here is your former slave, Onesimus. Have him back forever. No longer a slave, but a dear brother. Welcome him as you would welcome me. Refresh my heart. Do even more than I ask. Even though he doesn't say it explicitly, I think Paul is asking for Philemon to free Onesimus. Philemon, in the name of Christ, I ask you to do more. I ask you to do what no one else would do. I ask you to do more. Free Onesimus. And freeing Onesimus is something that no one else would do. 
Everyone in the ancient world assumed slavery was a given. Scholars estimate that a quarter to a third of those living in the Roman Empire were slaves. People became slaves for lots of reasons. Some were conquered in battle and taken as slaves. Some were abducted by slavers, kidnapped. Some were forced into slavery to pay off their debts. Some were born into slavery because their mothers were slaves. And slaves were not legally people. They had no legal personhood standing. They were living things. They were living tools. Often they were not even called slaves, but they were just referred to as bodies in texts, extensions of their owner's bodies. In fact, when an owner committed a crime, the law allowed the slave to be punished for the crime that the master committed, flogged, whipped, beaten, and that would count as the owner being punished, part of his own body. Slaves couldn't get married. They were victims of physical, sexual, and psychological abuse. Any child born to a slave was the property of the owner, adding material wealth, commodities that could be bought and sold at will, the same way you might sell an old lawnmower on eBay. If the owner didn't want that child, he could, it was called exposing the child, which he could even do to his own children if he wanted to. He could expose children, which meant leaving them on top of garbage piles, exposing them. And these babies were known as little bodies in texts, little bodies. And anyone could pick them up and do whatever they wanted to with them, or no one could pick them up at all. There were no moral or legal grounds for a slave to appeal to for help. There were no police officers who would come to their aid. There were no lawyers or social workers to defend them. You know, some masters were better than others, and they would take better care of their slaves the way that some of you might take better care of your car than someone else. But there was no such thing as universal human dignity. There were no self-evident truths that all men were created equal, let alone all women who were not allowed to be educated or those with disabilities who were usually drowned at birth. And into this cruel and ruthless and terrible system, the gospel blazed through with revolutionary thunder. Paul was a person The gospel says Philemon was a person. Onesimus was a person made in the image of God. And Jesus loved them so much that he died for them. And because of Christ, they could no longer view each other the way that the world expected them to view each other. The cultural and social relationships, the norms of the day, they had to change because of Christ. The old ways that divided humanity along racial and legal and gender longs no longer triumphed in the world. Because of Christ, we put on a new identity. And that identity is being renewed in the image of our creator. And here in Christ, there is no Gentile, and there is no Jew, and there is no circumcised or uncircumcised. There's no slave, and there's no free, but Christ is all. Christ is in all. This is a revolution. This is a gospel revolution that takes place not on the battlefield, but in the human heart. It changes the way we think about ourselves and the way we think about our world and the way that we think about others. No longer a slave, but a brother. No longer an enemy, a friend. And as gospel revolutionaries, we start doing things that just don't make sense to the world. Things like this. Some early Christians sold themselves into slavery in order to share the gospel with those who were enslaved. They enslaved themselves in the hopes that they could liberate others. Other early Christians started to go to the garbage piles, and they started to pick up those little unwanted bodies, and they started to take care of them. And within a few centuries, people stopped leaving babies on garbage piles 
and instead they took them to the doors of the churches. That's a gospel revolution. And Paul, in this letter, you know, he's not advocating to overthrow the entire institution of slavery all at once. That was going to take Christians, sadly, another 1,800 years. But he is challenging individual Christians and Christian communities to start doing what they could do, the next right thing, done in the strength that they had, a gospel revolution that started with Onesimus staring at Philemon and Philemon absorbing Paul's words and responding to Jesus and doing even more. Free Onesimus, change the game, turn the tables. So the last question, what does this mean for us today? You know, we talk a lot about transformation in Christian circles. It's like a word we throw out there all the time, transformation. But transformation doesn't actually capture, I think, what God wants to do in us. It's an upheaval. It's a revolution in our spirits, the overthrow of a tyrant and the reestablishment of a rightful king in our hearts. The old has gone and the new has come. Are we revolutionaries for Jesus? Do we follow the pattern of the world or do we follow our Savior to the cross? You know, Scripture encourages us this, with this sort of sentiment often. Don't just pretend to love others, friends. Don't just think about it. Don't just talk about it. Don't just tweet about it. Don't just watch movies about it. Go and actually really love them. And none of this is easy. Maybe Philemon's reading Paul's letter and thinking, he's just a slave. Maybe I'll just treat him a little bit better. What's the big deal? Lord knows we still hear this, what's the big deal all the time, right? When it comes to class and racial tensions, I'm not hurting anybody, what's the big deal? That statue of a Civil War general isn't hurting anybody, what's the big deal? That happened so long ago. What's the big deal? It has nothing to do with me. What's the big deal? But I think prejudice and social hierarchies are, are as present today as they were in Paul's day. Those who have power still exploit those who have less power, and all too often those who profess to follow Christ are just as complicit, just as power-hungry, just as cruel as everyone else. The church used Scripture to defend slavery in the United States and to prop up social hierarchies. Even now, women regularly find themselves more excluded in evangelical circles than they do in corporate or professional settings. Yet the true gospel of Jesus is at work. Wherever there is revolutionary change that restores human dignity, wherever there is the tearing down of dividing walls, wherever there are people making things right again, then the gospel of Jesus is at work there in the hearts and minds of those who have been transformed by grace. So my question is, what social and power dynamics do you find yourself in right now? What social and power dynamics do you find yourself in? And do those dynamics honor Christ? And how can you advance Jesus' revolutionary, redemptive, even more gospel in that space? That's the lesson from the lesser-known letter to Philemon this morning. I think this is why the church fathers included the letter to Philemon in the New Testament, to teach us to be these gospel revolutionaries, to do even more than is asked, more than is reasonably expected, more than makes sense. Because we know a love that does more than makes sense. Christ laid down his life for us. He died on the cross, and he stepped out of the tomb, and he overthrew sin and death. He came to the garbage pile, and he picked us up, and he took us home and made us part of his family. And in the process, he's overcoming oppression and hatred and prejudice and fear and anger and greed and envy and all of these things that seem so normal to us in our world. He rose victorious over these things. So we live and we love with great hope as Christians, that we are forgiven, that we are no longer slaves, but brothers no longer abandoned, but daughters 
no longer enemies but friends. And in his name, Jesus asks us to do even more, not because we have to, not of compulsion, but because we want to and because we love him. Amen? Let's pray.